This is a podcast by The Straits Times. From wrestling to chess to motor racing to tennis and now football, Saudi Arabia has splashed the cash on athletes, teams and international competitions in recent years. With the effective merger of the PGA Tour and the Rebel Live Golf organisation, you could even say that the Gulf state has bought an entire sport. What is the end goal? Hi, I'm ST Sports reporter Deepanraj Ganesan and this is ST's Hard Tackle where we examine, analyse and debate a sports topic each month. And in today's episode, Sport Business Group Leader for Deloitte Asia Pacific, James Walton and ST Sports columnist John Bruin join me to get stuck into the pursuit of sports dominance by Saudi Arabia. The ultimate question is, should we take Saudi Arabia's pursuit of football seriously? Yeah, hi James, hi John. John, I know when it comes to Saudi Arabia, we've got to look at the football first and foremost. Did you ever, in your lifetime at least, envision the day where you see the likes of Ruben Neves, Cristiano Ronaldo, Neymar and Jordan Henderson playing their trade in Saudi Arabia? It would have seemed unlikely a few years ago, but it's never been impossible. You might laugh at this, but I am reminded of uh, sort of schoolboy comics in which teams play teams from all over the world, and that includes you know teams from Saudi Arabia playing Melchester Rovers with Roy the Rovers playing up front for them. Listen, football is a global sport. Uh, Saudi Arabia is a globally wealthy country. I think one of the issues with Saudi Arabia that people don't have is the fact that Saudi Arabia has its own football culture. And there are several conditions that go against that. But yes, it is unbelievable. But, you know, we've had these bubbles before. I mean, you can go back to, I think, the late 1940s, where Alfredo Di Stefano, one of the greatest players of all time, ended up in a rebel Colombian league. And then, you know, more recently... You know, you had the NASL, American Soccer League, where, you know, Pele, Johan Cruyff, people went to play. And then we had that China bubble maybe 10 years ago, which was the most similar to this, I'd say. Though the Chinese eventually decided that they didn't want to put the money into it. I would suggest that the Saudi Arabia have, necessarily have more money than China, but they have the investment. And uh, the stat I heard recently was to compare the investment they put into football so far and compare that to the money they put into buying Western art, well, it's a fraction of it. It's They have the funds, and if they want to make it work, they can make it work. Yeah, well, I, I think an important context that, that you mentioned earlier is the, is the football culture uh, in Saudi Arabia. I think for listeners, it's, it's important to note that they already had a, a football culture You know, before this investment. Your likes of Al-Itihad, Al-Ali are quite well supported in the sense where they would fill out their stadiums to 20,000 to 25,000 supporters. Uh, James, the similar question that, that I want to ask you is that did you you know, ever think that this was something that was a possibility and, and how are you viewing all these things? Yeah, I think I echo what John said. I mean, the most recent one, the China one's interesting and, and let's not forget Oscar is still somewhere out there in deepest, <laughs> darkest China yeah. as the yeah. person who didn't escape. But the, the difference there, what was interesting with China was the political motivation was very difficult, so with uh, very different rather. So with China, it was really about showing that they can buy up and own these assets. And there was a little bit of an agenda around the football. 
side of things in terms of that they were trying to qualify for a World Cup and develop their football. And the reason it all kind of fell down was because they were buying up all these assets and thought that they were showing the world. And then they kind of realized one day that effectively they were distributing China asset and giving China assets outside and that all their capital was going out and they weren't really getting anything to show for it and that it didn't make economic sense and that it was not furthering the agenda they had. The difference with Saudi Arabia, as John said, is firstly, their pockets are a lot deeper. We're hearing they've got $17 billion that they're going to put into football in the next seven years. And so far, in terms of you know wages is one thing, but in terms of transfer fees, they're only at about $500 million so far, right? But the other thing that's that's different is why is Saudi Arabia doing it? And I think we'll discuss later around some of the political reasons. But those are political reasons that get into much bigger things than just wanting to show the world that you're serious, which was the China case, that it really does potentially get to levels of diplomacy and economic significance and political significance that means that it is a government investment as a strategic priority of the of the nation. Uh, the biggest question for me is is perhaps whether others will follow suit. So there's been talk in the last couple of days about perhaps some other Middle Eastern nations starting to try to attract some players to their to their league. There was talk about Qatar starting to maybe start bidding for some players. And then you really wonder where you will get to. But as it stands at the moment, Saudi Arabia has spent more in this transfer window than any league except the Premier League. Ahead of La Liga, mind you, Chelsea have spent more than La Liga have spent, but again, different <laughs> different story for a different day. Um, but the question is really is, will this continue? Where does it end? Uh, but you've got to see it within the context of of the golf situation with the PGA Tour and, and Live Golf. You've got to see it within the context of all the other things, whether it's Grand Prix um, and investments into, into Formula One teams, investments into golf, that this is all part of a bigger picture and it is definitely not going to end soon. And and we will discuss the why of the situation a bit later on. But I just want to ask you, John, you know, are you concerned? I mean, is the word concerned even right to be using? I mean, what what are your thoughts on, on this situation as someone who is in the media scene in, in England? Well, okay, I am more concerned actually by the fact that Saudi Arabia own a Premier League club than I am more you know, essentially, you know, pumping up their own league, that they're entitled to do that. It's their own country. I think what we touched on there before is this idea that um, when Abu Dhabi bought Manchester City, that was, that was this idea of soft power. Now, Saudi Arabia isn't isn't Abu Dhabi. It's got hard power already, yeah? It already has. In terms of the world's nations, it is one of the most powerful. It's one of the richest. It is the big daddy of that Gulf region. I suppose a major power in the sense that China did, in the sense of Saudi Arabia wielding power in the game, perhaps creating an imbalance. I suppose to take it from parochial Premier League points points of view, there's a couple of clubs in Liverpool and Chelsea who've had their financial fair play problems dealt with rather easily by selling players to Saudi Arabia. Though you could say the same for Manchester United as well, because £750,000 a week was taken off their bill back in January by Cristiano Ronaldo moving over. I think in terms of Premier League clubs, they probably see Saudi Arabia as or somewhere to cash out. You've seen quite a few unwanted players head there. But we know what the end game is, that the Saudi Arabia want a league to boast to be of a similar level to Premier League, Syria. La Liga, whatever, uh, we don't know how possible that is. 
for the moment, it doesn't appear that big a threat. But, you know, dealing with Saudi Arabia as a nation from a Western country, you've got, obviously, issues of culture. You've got, I mean, yesterday, the news broke in the UK of immigrants being shot at the border with Yemen. You've got the Khashoggi affair of a few years back. Saudi Arabia is not a country seen as a nice country, even though it is an ally of Britain and in this country, we sell arms to them quite freely. Maybe that we didn't vote for that as individuals, but when a football league is used as that element of, as I say, hard power, yeah, there is a concern because, you know, of course it's nonsense to say that football and politics don't mix. They have done throughout the game's history but not quite on this brazen level. That's very true. Uh, it's, it's a very strong point that you're making. You know, we have talked a lot about the, the football side of things early on, but let's get to the start in terms of bringing sport into this. How did we get here, James? You know, why would Saudi Arabia be so invested in sport? What is it that you think they are trying to do? Well, that's the <laughs> that's the uh, the hot potato question there, right? I mean, to some people... They are just throwing their money around and looking to buy some playthings. And there's often, you know, Premier League owners that have been said before that, that really they they want just an asset to own and a, and a place to entertain and things like that. Some people will argue that. Some people will argue that it is about developing their own league. Some people will argue that it gets into things like tourism, right? Even though they didn't get Lionel Messi as a player, they've got him as a tourism ambassador, Right. Um, some people will argue it's about their position in, in the Gulf. Some will say it's to support their World Cup bid that they are still supposedly out there putting putting on the table. But I think the naysayers, the most aggressive critics are generally coming from the angle that, that John talked about there, which is that this is part of you know sport washing. And again, as I mentioned earlier, they've spent barely 500 million this transfer window. If you look back over the last two years, going back to 2021, they've spent something like $6 billion in total in sports deals. And that's to say, that's where you get into the golf and other things. So this football piece on the end is just the tip of the iceberg, so to speak. So I think John raised a very good point there, which is that we're sitting there criticizing and lamenting Saudi Arabia's human rights record and pointing at it in the football context, while at the same time the UK is selling arms mm. to this country. If, if you're not objecting to the fact your government is selling arms to this country, it's hard to argue with the fact that they're selling Edouard Mendy to this country. <laughs> uh, I, I would suggest he'll do potentially less, less damage in that regard, right? So it's a little bit of a moral quandary there. And somebody raised a brilliant question the other day, which is someone turned around and said, well, you know, Saudi Arabia, they got so much money. And because they've got so much more money, they're offering wages and transfer fees that blow all, all the other countries out of the water in order to develop their own league to such a position that it will that no one else will be able to compete to them. And the answer someone said was, isn't that what the Premier League's been doing? for the last X number of years, right? Now, of course, there's a difference in that that Premier League money largely came from within football, with the exception of some of these billionaire investors. And largely, you know, again, you talk about football culture and the history and how it has grown and all those things, but everything has to start somewhere. And does the fact that the Premier League is established and Bundesliga is established and Liga is established mean that nobody else can now come in and set up a competitive league? I think... 
we've all kind of accepted that this is how things are now. I think the next challenge, the next thing that's potentially coming down the line that will be where the battle lines get drawn will be what happens if Saudi Arabia attempts to buy place in the Champions League. And will UEFA reject that money? That, that will be a question coming down the line. What will happen if Saudi Arabia effectively buys the World Cup? I think these will be the things that will be the next battleground where these conversations will potentially get a lot more toxic. And one other thing that we've all kind of forgotten about in the midst of all this was our, our wonderful European Super League. What happens if a Super League comes back to the table with Saudi Arabia money behind it, where it's a couple of Saudi teams mixed in with some of these teams that were in desperate need of financial support? What would happen then to that European Super League idea if Saudi Arabia money was behind it? All of these are things that are not completely inconceivable in the next couple of years. And if we think that, you know, a few players moving here and there is a is a revolution, how would some of those things uh, affect the game is, is almost impossible to see. John, I believe you had something that you wanted to see? Yeah, I was going to say that, I mean, my understanding with, with the Super League uh, plan that fell apart, what was that, two years ago? Might even be three years ago, two years ago. Um, the seed capital was Saudi Arabian at the start of it. Um, but less than it, less than it would be now. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah. But um, that that was being lent to the bank to lend. Yeah. Um, the thing is to take the point of why Saudi Arabia is doing this. My understanding from from actually Abu Dhabi as well is that essentially they have all this oil wealth. Now the oil wealth won't last forever. It's finite in the sense that we'll run out of oil. And also the demand for oil will become less as, say, technologies change and we become greener, in inverted commas. Therefore, you know, they've tried to diversify their economy. So, of course, you've got this mega city, you know, which is a 300-mile city, the population of Saudi Arabia uh, is very, very young. Uh, and, of course, cultures change with a younger country. And to stay in charge... You've, of that country, you need a sort of bread and circuses thing. And what Saudi Arabia is doing is investing itself to to modernise. It was slow to modernise compared to, say, Dubai, Qatar. And, and this is its big push. And the football thing, as James said, it is a bit of a tip of the iceberg thing. It's a, it's a small part of a greater shift in Saudi Arabia. Um, and... That I think that needs to be recognised. With, with your help, you know, we've got the what and the why of the Saudi Arabian pursuit of sports. Uh, on these hard tackle shows, you know, we like our guests to state their opinions quite early on. And I know, James and John, you guys have already alluded to a bit of what you think about, about this whole thing. But I'll ask you now, uh, and we'll start with you, John, is that should we take Saudi's pursuit of sports seriously should we all be concerned are there reasons to be concerned there are some people in life who don't mind where the money comes from in which case saudi arabia is a welcome entrant into the soccer world now think of the premier league think of richard scudamore the guy that used to be um in charge of the premier league now he, he had a phrase we're ownership neutral now, I think that phrase in particular, Richard Scudamore was very successful in his job. The Premier League is now the most, is the biggest league in the world. You know, perhaps only the NFL has that, that same quality of branding. 
that depth of, of following. I think Ownership Mutual has probably backfired on the Premier League. It's because eventually, if you have a club zone by Saudi Arabia, Abu Dhabi, you've got Qatar wanting to buy Man United, we think, we don't really know what's going on with that. Are you going to end up with a Premier League which is just owned by these nation states? I mean, we've already had, and it took a long time for this to wash out, the fact that Vladimir Putin's bagman owned a football club. Now, hidden behind uh, him having very expensive lawyers and that, eventually that came out in a wash. And this is the type of thing, if you allow that type of investment to come into your league or you take the money from that league in selling players to them, are you engaging in money which carries, you know, uh, almost a watermark of, of being dodgy money? And that's one point. Now, if you don't care where the money comes from, Saudi Arabia is a boom. If you are Jordan Henderson and you have advocated LGBTQ plus rights and then you take the money, well, unfortunately, hypocrisy is going to be the accusation. Now, we are all hypocrites in life. We, we, we All of us on this room recognise that. But there are levels of hypocrisy, <laughs> aren't there? Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. And now back to our podcast episode. And now back to my conversation with James Walton and John Bruin. James, to bring you in to, to answer this question, uh, if you may, you know, try to bring in the, the fan side of it. I know you're a big Spurs yeah, that, fan. No, that was the way I was going to gonna go because I echo everything John said, but to, to take it one step further, I guess the challenge with this will be around disparity within the league. And so we already see in the Premier League, as John mentioned, because of these owners coming in, it's meant that there's a, a haves and have-nots. And that what we've seen as a result is there are Premier League players being paid a ridiculous amount of money. While meanwhile, down in the lower leagues, there are, there, there are people struggling to stay afloat. And we've got fans who are basically the ones in many cases footing the, the bill on this stuff and picking up the pieces later, paying you know exorbitant amounts uh, for, for, their, for their tickets, for their merchandise, for their, for their food and such. And as I mentioned earlier, we're already seeing disparity between the European leagues. But if you, you, you take the current situation, um, if you are Fulham and you have Alex Mitrovic and, and he's getting paid whatever he's on, I've got to be honest, I don't know, but I'm guessing it probably would have been around 75 or, or 100,000 a week at, at best. Yeah, probably about a hundred a week at best. And and what is he going to get now in Saudi Arabia? I'm I'm guessing it's three hundred, four hundred, five hundred. I'm sure he's got that. So if you're Fulham, you you have a situation as well. Well, do you just have to let him? You just have to let him go in that situation because you can't match. So it's interesting at the moment that they've been taking what I would call wanted players from teams like Fulham and and Wolves in the case of of Neves. These are players that are relatively at the peak of their their performance but are being paid 100 grand 150 grand a week which means they can afford to steal them um but what they've only taken so far from the bigger teams is is generally the the leftovers the residues the edward mendes the the jordan hendersons the people that are, are pretty much either at the end of their uh, career or, or are unwanted at the club and, and the club is willing to to take their money but as I say, you wonder as this continues, firstly, will you see an exodus of talent? Secondly, will it create uh, further wage increases in order for the Premier League to try to hold on to these players? Will the fans end up having to pay more money 
for a lower quality of football because some players take the money and go overseas and the ones that remain use those offers to renegotiate their contracts. There's a lot of things that could happen in this regard at the moment, but it's pretty clear that what we're going to get in the short term is a slightly lesser product in the Premier League because of some of those players leaving and that the fans are probably in the in the short term not going to get any better deal than they're, than they're currently getting as the Premier League responds to this. So is it safe to assume then, James, that you think that we should be concerned? But it's, it's like John said, it's this, this is the tip of the iceberg. We're suddenly all getting upset about this because it's football, but when it wasn't football and it was other things, we, we, we almost turned a blind a blind eye to it, right? It's a bit like with the Qatar World Cup. For years, it was known what was going on with Qatar and the World Cup. And then six months out, people suddenly start going, you know, hold on, Qatar's holding the World Cup. You know, how, how did this happen, right? So I think fans should be concerned about this. I think they should be concerned. But I, I think fans should be concerned in the first place about whether or not foreign owners who are buying football teams as either playthings or as economic investment, are putting the best interests of the fans at the center of things in the first place. I, I would question that, whether or not with any connection to the local community and things like that. I mean, it always gets me when you go to Man City and you see them holding up banners, lauding how marvelous the shake is, and you kind of sit there and go, you know, do you guys realize what you're actually what you're actually doing here, right? So I, I, I do think we should be worried, but I, but I also think some of the knee-jerk kind of comments around that you know that that UEFA or the Premier League should put transfer bans on players going out to these leagues and things like that is a little bit rich but I think we need to take a longer term perspective and think about what is the the direction and and where is the Premier League going in this new world when it finally has an an actual competitor for the title of you know richest league and and the place where players potentially want to be. Yeah, when we look at this conversation and a lot of what you guys have been saying, I think it can be established that there's a level of concern. Uh, John, my question to you, if I may play a devil's advocate, is why why should it be seen like that Saudi Arabia cannot challenge the English Premier League? Why is it that you know a lot of the narrative around this is that? oh, they, they don't have a right to do this or or they shouldn't be doing this. Because years ago, I mean, when the money was coming into the Premier League, there wasn't that much of a narrative, wasn't there? No, but, but I do suppose, I mean, if you take it from a European perspective, English clubs had a tradition. I mean, the Premier League, uh, you know, it was formed in 1992. It, it was only in 1984 that English clubs stopped winning the European Cup. It wasn't as if you were starting from scratch. It wasn't as if, you, you know, the, the tradition was there, the infrastructure was there, there was 92 professional clubs and a significant pyramid below that. Now, as I said, you know, some of those clubs in Saudi Arabia are long established. Saudi Arabia have frequently played at the World Cup. We know that. It's not as if we, you can't recognise that there's no, fo- you can't say there's no football culture in Saudi Arabia, but to build from scratch, as China found out, is very, very difficult. Also, the conditions, and you, you, you're going to be able to tell us a, bit, a little bit more about those, um, do not seem conducive to footballers being able to play there. Now, actually, Qatar in, in the World Cup, as it turned out, seemed like a pretty decent place to play football at that time of year. But it's not that time. It's, the weather's only like that for you know eight weeks of the year or whatever. F- football suits wet Northern Europe. It suits... Some, you know certain areas of South America 
it may not be that Saudi Arabia, unless they invest in unbelievable technology, the type of technology, by the way, that we were promised in the bidding process for the Qatar 2010 World Cup, that they would have air-conditioned stadiums, which I believe they were conditioned to the point where it's too cold if you sat in a seat. But the players, well, you know, you have to wear a coat if you sat in your seat, but the players themselves, you know, were fine. Uh, so maybe we can do that. Um, yeah, the, the finances are there, but there's a hell of a long way to go. And even that Premier League dominance, it took a long time from 1992 to say, let's say in about 2008, 2009, was about the time that the Premier League became up there with La Liga, and it still had to drop behind La Liga because they had Ronaldo and Messi. And I would say it's only since the Ronaldo-Messi era finished the Premier League achieved that domination. To become that, it's going to take a long way. And of course, the other factor is that Saudi Arabia is in Asia. Now, of course, if you have a global competition, perhaps, uh, then maybe that could be a factor, but that's not been the tradition of football. Football comes together at a World Cup international teams the world cup is the greatest event in sport for that reason the great the women's world cup has been like that for that reason it's brought together nations it's nationhood and football really do work together club football's brilliant of course the champions league is the highest level but can you recreate that where saudi arabia play a part in that well then we're getting to logistics then we're getting to a redrawing of the world calendar now saudi arabia have got a lot of money but have they got the influence to make something like that happen? Well, that's the next question, isn't it? You've already highlighted um, several challenges that, that Saudi Arabia possibly has in terms of what it wants to do with sport and in particular football. Uh, you know, you talked about, you know, how it was like in Saudi Arabia. I was there for a week and I must say, you know, it was incredibly hot. I mean, despite the fact that I come from Singapore <laughs> uh, where it's perpetually hot, you know, I found it quite unbearable really? even to wow. sit in the stands and, and, and watch the game. I had to take a break and go into the air-conditioned uh, media centre. Uh, that's how bad it was. And I could see Jordan Henderson on his debut on his haunches 30 minutes in to, to the game. And of course, like like you mentioned, it might not always be uh, this bad a, a weather in terms of the warmth. It may get better, you know, a, as the year goes on. But, you know, you do wonder, you know, do, do these footballers know what it's like before they sign up for these deals? Or is this something they find out when they get out to the pitch and, and they play their first game? And also, I mean, this might be a very small point, but we were given a tour um, of the changing rooms. Uh, and... <laughs> They're as basic as it I was, gets. I was about to ask you that that question, right? I mean, I mean, like you say, the 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 stadiums that were in Qatar that John alluded to took many many years and many billions of dollars to build, and Saudi Arabia has not done that. They moved the World Cup to December because of the heat of summer, and yet Saudi Arabia is there playing with these players in in August, and and exactly that changing room point was going to be my question. Having seen what the stands look like, what do the changing rooms look like for players who are used to having, you know, individual jacuzzis in their, <laughs> in their, I'm not sure you'd want a jacuzzi, definitely the ice bath would be the, would be the place to be, right? But things like that will surely be the next investment that they have to, to put in. And I would imagine that that is where the money will go because otherwise pretty soon those players will start making some, some comments to, to that effect and that will affect to your point, whether or not people are willing to to go there in, in future. There's a certain sum of money, I think, where you, as John alluded to earlier, your principles go out the window, <laughs> including things that you have previously stated on the record and won awards 
for your political positions on. Um, but I think there comes a point where, you know, if you're in those kind of changing rooms every week, you're going to turn around to the owners and say, if you can afford to pay me half a million a week, surely you can afford to spend a million dollars to fix the, the changing rooms and things like that. So I think it will follow in, in due course. But then the question, as I say, becomes, do you move the timing of the league season and things like that to take some of these things into account? I think they've got a lot of work to do and they've effectively thrown money at things at the moment without getting everything in place, in place for yeah. what will come behind. Yeah, Completely. Let, we, we'll have to probably wait and see you know, what happens, You know whether we might get air-conditioned stadiums in Saudi Arabia anytime soon. But just to wrap up this whole conversation, you know, we've already seen what's taking place. Again, to, to take a step back and look at it from a whole sporting perspective and not just football, I want to end the conversation by asking each of you, you know, what do you think the future holds? What might we see happen next in terms of Saudi Arabia and sports? Okay, now, uh, during the, the last World Cup, uh, Gianni Infantino appeared to be quite close to uh, various Saudi Arabian dignitaries. As I understand it, the bid for the 2030 World Cup is postponed, but 2034, maybe 2038 beyond that, that's obviously a target for them. And that obviously will involve the, the infrastructure, it'll involve the, you know, the mega city that I talked of being built before. And the other thing is that FIFA, uh, despite FIFA and UEFA have always had this relationship where FIFA, well, it's fair to say, like the money, and look at UEFA, and UEFA have the Champions League, which is you know this incredible uh, driver of, of finance, um, and they want a World League. They want this Club World Cup thing, something that's abortively happened a couple of times. I believe there's going to be one soon. I mean, it, it, these things shift around. Maybe you might know a bit more about it than I do, but I've sort of lost count of, you know, COVID interfered with the last one and then it's maybe, you know, a very strong, rich league in the Asian Confederation helps someone like Gianni Infantino push towards that world league. Now, say you've got, you can make South America football a bit stronger um, and you can make North American football stronger. You know, you've got Messi there, although the fact that Messi's dancing through it makes me think it's maybe not that strong, but that's a separate issue. But, you know, you push those confederations and you break the dominance of Europe over world football, then Saudi Arabia is a key tool in that. Now, as long as Infantino's about and, you know, he just keep extending his uh, stay, Saudi Arabia's got a big part to play and Saudi Arabia has the money as well. And I said, FIFA like the money. I see that being an issue. That's going to be a big part of the politics. We, of course, had this, farce at the, the uh, Women's World Cup where Saudi Arabia was a sponsor. They just hadn't told anybody. And then when it was revealed, they had to remove them because of women's football, because of attitudes to women, because women's football is a sport in which people are out and proud in LGBTQI sense. And so what you've got is FIFA edging towards Saudi Arabia and Saudi Arabia is possibly going to become, almost, almost certainly become a power broker in the world game because of that finance. I do wonder though, taking that Jordan Henderson example, if you go and play a season in Saudi Arabia under those conditions and you're Jordan Henderson, what is he, 32, 33, something like that? Now, I think someone like Jordan Henderson probably thought, I'll go out there, play two seasons, then come back, play my final two seasons for Sunderland, his hometown club. But he might not be able to after he's played two years, essentially in conditions that 
you know, are going to take a great big strain on his body. The type of strain, by the way, that workers have suffered in building stadiums in Qatar. It's, you know, these things are all of a piece. It's all connected. Yeah, Saudi Arabia have a big part to play in the future of football. Of course they do. The money dictates that. Let's see what happens. Um, I am, as I'm sure you can gather, fairly cynical about it. But, you know, what they have is money. And money talks in this game because one of the issues of reason, the reason why you have investors from Russia, investors from Abu Dhabi, China, whatever, is because football and footballers always want more money. And this is the thing, agents, clubs, you know, from fans, uh, fans have been asked to pay much, you know, ticket prices are going up in the in the Premier League this season because it's been blamed on inflation. The quest for more money means that there is always an open door for a power like Saudi Arabia. Well put, John. Uh, James, just to end off with you, what does the future hold for Saudi Arabian sports? Yeah, so so I think John touched on an important point there, which is for, for someone like Infantino, Saudi Arabia willing to put, you know, billions potentially into something like the World Club Championship, never mind the World Cup, which is something that traditionally, you know, hasn't made a lot of money. It's usually a bit of a showcase for the World Cup venue. There's only a couple of teams in it. Now they want to expand it and and almost make a competitor to, to the Champions League and such. Saudi Arabia putting money behind that from Infantino's point of view means more money that he can give to Africa, more money that he can give to South America, which then in turn he will go to them and say, I'm giving you this money because I'm helping do all this, therefore you should vote for me, right? And and those kind of conversations, it's it's shoring things up. And, and that's why another reason why the Europeans are a little bit objecting to this is what we've seen in some of the last World Cup bidding processes, for example, is, you know, 54, 55, whatever it is, African nations voting on block for Sepp Blatter's choice is more nations than are in, in UEFA, effectively. And, and suddenly you've got a, a vote swinging as a result of that. And it's a lot easier to get those African votes by saying, I will put the money back in than it is perhaps to get the the UEFA votes, right? But I think the thing to me that underpins all this, I mentioned earlier, they're saying $17 billion PIF is ready to put in in the next seven years. You've got what's happening in golf. You've got what's happening in, in, in other sports as well. I come back to one thing. It, it, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, his birthday's next week. Um, he's going to be 38 years old. Uh, it's younger than me. How dare I'm you? I'm sure yeah, it's younger yeah, than John. Yeah, yeah. Deep, I'm not sure about you, Deep. <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> yeah. so, so 38 years old. But, ju- but just have a think about that. That means that if he is the one driving this as a political and economic policy, you are not in a situation where there's going to be a regime change five years from now that is going to change that that policy or 10 years from now, in spite of some of the internal politics we hear about in Saudi Arabia, he if this is what he wants to do, then this is the next 20 years. This is the next 30 years. And in fact, to what John alluded to earlier, a lot of his money is coming from oil. But precisely the reason that they're doing some of this stuff is to develop tourism and to develop other streams of revenue and and income streams so that they can diversify and basically use all that oil money now to buy up assets so that down the line in future you have revenue streams coming in and alternative income streams coming in when the oil oil dries up, right? So to me, this is really the tip of the iceberg. I do not think we will see 
the kind of climb down we saw from China. And and we should note that that in that China climb down case, there were still sports like tennis where they were continuing to invest heavily. They just decided not to throw the money into the into into the Chinese Premier League anymore. I think this is the tip of the iceberg. I think we've got to get used to the fact that for the next couple of years, at least 5, 10, 15 years, there is going to be an, an, an alternative power on the scene. And as as John talks about that, you know, in football terms, we have UEFA, we have Asia, we have Africa, these things. I really think 10 years from now that we could see a different world order in football. And the worry is who are the people that are going to be constructing that world order. And to be clear, it's not Saudi Arabia doing that on their own. And people with some other agendas are going to perhaps ride on that wave to do what they want to do to change the game. And I think we should all be aware that these are the kind of things that will creep up on us. Um, and then it'll happen one day uh, with a cast of nations voting for it on the on the basis that it helps their individual pockets uh, without necessarily thinking about the long-term consequence. So... This is just the beginning. It's almost as if there should be a horror music that, that sets in right about now. Uh, but a very good discussion as always with John and James. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm sure the listeners will appreciate the, the, the debate that we had on Saudi Arabia and what they're doing with sports. Let's see what happens uh, in the years to come. Thanks very much for having me. Yeah, cheers. Thank you. That was a podcast by The Straits Times. Send your feedback to podcast at sph.com.sg. Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. For more podcasts by The Straits Times, The Business Times, and Money FM 89.3, you can also download the audio by SPH app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O.